0: word, I pray that you will speak to us through the study today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I had to have one Christmas story. Do you you know how incredibly lame jokes are to try to find online? Clean Christmas. Oh, it's awful. Anyways, this one kind of made me smile, kind of. When my niece was a student, uh, her class of six-year-olds saying, Hark the Herald Angel, sing at a Christmas concert. And the line that said, God and sinners reconciled, was kind of tricky for this age group of six year olds. So one little boy with a voice completely drowned out the rest of the choir and belted out, God and sinners dressed in style. <clears throat> Kids do get the words wrong. And it seems Jesus talked a great deal about his death and resurrection. I have one other little story. A boss asked his uh, employee, do you believe in life after death? Uh, and he said, well, yes, sir. And that, he said, well, that's good, because after you left yesterday to go to your grandmother's funeral, she stopped by to see you. <laughs> so be sure your sin will find you out. <laughs> if you're able to turn your chair around so you don't have to crank your neck, I don't know <laughs> if you've got room, but do whatever you want to do. So." Last time we met, we saw how the sovereign God of the universe is right on time and in total control. It seemed to Mary and Martha that Jesus was late, too late, but there was a purpose in his delay in coming. The miracle that Jesus would do in raising Lazarus from the dead was a part of a grand scheme of events that is going to be used by God to set the stage for the death of Jesus that was predetermined by the Godhead. Many who witnessed the miracle of seeing Lazarus raised from the dead after four days in the tomb uh, were telling everybody they met about this miracle. And as thousands and thousands of pilgrims flooded into the city of Jerusalem for the Passover feast, they were telling about what Jesus had done. This ultimately then led to the triumphal entry Uh, into the city by Jesus riding on a donkey colt. And all of this was to fulfill scripture down to the smallest detail that was prophesied. So this miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus, again, is what incited the religious leaders to act promptly, like they were freaking out of the influence that he was having on the people. So they had planned to wait till after the Passover, but God overruled because Jesus, the Passover lamb, is going to die the Passover week so that brings us to the passion week in chapter 12 verse 20 which starts out with gentiles coming into jerusalem and wanting to visit and have a talk with jesus so we read well we first of all i just want to say how the emphasis of john if you'll notice is that jesus is the savior of the world so being for the world we read about these greek people who came to see jesus these were converts to Judaism who had come to worship at the Feast of Passover. We are about to celebrate Christmas, and you remember how foreign Gentiles came to worship the young child, Jesus. Just And here we are, just before his death, we have Gentiles coming to see Jesus as well. These Gentiles sought out Philip, who told Andrew, who gave the request to the Lord. And the response of Jesus is in verse 23. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, Jesus didn't give an answer here about whether he saw the Greek people or not. I assume he did. But the coming of the Greek people here was a sign and a turning point that salvation would be offered not only to Jewish people, but to the Gentiles as well. The Pharisees led the nation in rejecting Jesus, and they're about to kill him. And what a total contrast that is to Gentiles coming and wanting to see Jesus. Jesus goes on to make it very clear that he would be glorified Through his death and resurrection, and he gives this agricultural example about a grain of wheat that dies, and ultimately, because it dies, it bears much fruit. This fruit would include a great harvest of Gentiles, just like these Greeks who had come to meet Jesus. He also made it very clear that the ones who serve him must also follow him and walk as he walked. His followers die to self and live for his glory, Romans chapter 6, Galatians 2.20. There must be a willingness to follow Jesus wherever he may choose to plant you. His servants die to selfish ambition and selfish desires to serve their Lord and their King. And that brings us to Jesus expressing the agony in his soul as he was facing the cross. Verse 27, now my soul has become trouble. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. The anguish that Jesus experienced was because of the knowledge that he had of the fact that he was going to become sin. I mean, every wicked deed done, thought, action by any who would come to him by faith is going to be laid on him. He will become sin in the next few hours. He will experience the full fury of the wrath of God he will experience complete abandonment and total separation and aloneness. As the father turns his back on him, clearly his soul is greatly troubled. This was all part of the shame that Jesus despised, but for the joy set before him, he did endure the cross. It included the unjust and cruel torture, death that awaited him. And in his humanity, to dread this hour is normal, and we'll see him dreading it again in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knew that the whole purpose for his coming was to bring him to this very hour. Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your name. What he does for us here, ladies, is set such a wonderful example to us. Because there are times when our souls are grieved, and we are troubled, and we are in anguish. And how did Jesus pray when it was this case, this way for him? His prayer in his pain was that the Father would be glorified. If he is your father, then you have reason for great comfort and hope in the midst of any situation. He's never going to abandon you. He's never going to leave you alone. And what he has sovereignly brought into each of our lives, whether it's illness, loss of independence, financial distress, broken relationships, it all has a purpose. And he would have us respond in the way Jesus did, that we would glorify God in the middle of all of that. Our prayer must follow the example of Jesus, asking him to be glorified in how we respond and how we react. Well, for the third time in his earthly ministry, his baptism, his transfiguration, and now here, a voice of the Father is heard from heaven. The Father has been glorified in the life and ministry of Jesus, and the Father is going to be glorified through his death. And the crowd of people who heard, they didn't understand what they heard, They should have been convinced that the Father in heaven was responding to Jesus' prayer. Jesus then talks about the enemy being defeated. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he is saying this to indicate the kind of death he was about to die. What might seem like victory to all those who hated Jesus. In reality, it is his death that would bring judgment to the world and would bring defeat for Satan and his world system. As the author of Hebrews stated, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So Jesus would be lifted up on a cross for sinners. The all men is not speaking of universalism, that everybody who's ever born, is all gonna, they're all going to go to heaven. <clears throat> That's not what the scripture teaches. But that everyone from every type of background, every tribe, every tongue, every culture, there'll be those who believe on him who is lifted up for us. Clearly, many of the people listening to Jesus did not understand what he was teaching but the light was shining right there in their midst, and there would be some who would believe and come to him by faith and would pass from spiritual darkness into the light of salvation. We read that after this, Jesus went away and hid himself, a very sad ending to his public ministry to the nation that he loved so much. That brings us verses 37 through 49. John explains the unbelief then of the people, the nation as a whole. First of all, he says they would not believe, Then they could not believe until they finally should not believe. John quotes from Isaiah 51 as well as Isaiah 6. And even though there was clear evidence presented to these people um, to believe, they did not. It's a dangerous thing to resist the light as it can lead to a place where a person cannot believe. There were also those who would not openly confess that Jesus is the Messiah even though they believed that he was. And Jesus made it clear that God sent the Son to see. The Son is to see the Father, that he is the light of the world, and that the words that he spoke were the very words of God, the words of truth. And Jesus warns of impending judgment for that last day of rejecting the word he spoke to them. To turn your back on this truth will bring ultimate judgment. That brings us to chapter 13, the most beautiful picture of the love of Jesus and his amazing humility. As we study uh, chapters 13 through 17, which we won't pick up till after our break at Christmas, but all of that will be a farewell message to Jesus' disciples and by way of application, much truth given to us. And as we come to this particular chapter, Jesus adds a living illustration of what servanthood looks like as he gives them an object lesson that they will never forget. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So the divinely appointed hour had finally come when he would be glorified through his death, resurrection, and ascension. And in his humanity, it meant great suffering. But from a heavenly perspective, perspective, it was great glory. Jesus was about to finish his work on earth. His enemies could not even arrest him or kill him until he dictated the right moment in time. He was in charge of every circumstance. Jesus certainly did long to return to the Father and long to be in his full glory again. But his focus here at this moment is how he loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end. That is, he loved them to utter completeness. He loved them to the fullest measure possible. Certainly he loves the world of sinners, but the love that he has for his own is a redeeming love, a perfect love. It is an eternal love. Well, verse two, during supper, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hand and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper. So they were already all around the table with their filthy feet. He got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. What an abrupt change from verse two. The love of Jesus is now contrasted with the darkness and the sin that's in the heart of Judas. Judas' sinful heart, full of greed, made him an easy target for Satan to tempt and influence. Satan certainly was behind the betrayal of Jesus, but Judas was, in, was completely responsible for what he did because he lined up his own heart with the desire of Satan. What started out as an idea in the back of his mind, maybe he could get some money out of this deal, uh, would lead to him being under the complete control of Satan in verse 27. And he would carry out his plan to betray Jesus. In verse 3, we see that Jesus knew the Father had given all things into his hand, and he was going back to God. John then reminds his reader here, of the Jesus' glory and exaltation as he was about to return to heaven, which is in total contrast then with the humility that Jesus is about to display for us here. It's stunning. And as you know, people at this time wore sandals. Their feet certainly got filthy because they walked on dirty roads or roads that had stones on them. So mud splashed up, animal stuff splashed up, and... Whatever garbage was on the street, I mean, it couldn't help but get on your feet with open sandals. So it was the custom for whoever had the lowest position in the gathering, the household, that they would wash everybody's feet before dinner. It wasn't like us, we can hide our feet under a table. They laid on their sides next to a low table, so their feet were very close to the face of the person next to them. The Passover meal was now to be eaten, and none of the disciples had taken any effort to do this task. I mean, I'm not doing it. He's not doing it. Nobody's doing it. But Jesus, the creator of the universe, in his amazing display of humility, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, he girded himself, and then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. What a rebuke to his disciples. How awkward it must have been. I'm sure they're all looking at each other. Whoa, what's he doing? Of course, when he got to Simon, he always has a response. Lord, do you wash my feet? This had to make the men all so uncomfortable and embarrassed that Jesus was doing this. Jesus answered and said to him, what I do to you, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter and the other disciples would not understand this whole illustration and example by Jesus till after his death, resurrection, and ascension. They did not yet get it that Jesus came to be a servant, to die as a ransom for many and serve the many. Peter, in his typical fashion, feels as if he needs to tell Jesus what he should be doing here. And so he emphatically says, never shall you wash my feet. And the Lord is so patient as he responds to Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. He is showing his men that at this time, in his first coming, he was the selfless savior who had sacrifice his life for the sins of his people. It is only those who have been cleansed by him that can have a true relationship with him. The picture of cleansing by water was not about an outward washing, but about a heart that had repented of sin, confessed sin, and put faith in Jesus for who he is. Peter gives the opposite extreme reaction, well, then just wash me everywhere. You know, hands, feet, head, everything. And Jesus explains that the one who's already had a bath just needs only to have their feet washed. Just as a person comes to faith in Jesus for salvation, at that very moment, they are cleansed of all of their sin, past, present, future. They do not need salvation again and again and again. Every true believer has the righteousness of Christ imputed to them, put on their account the moment they put their trust in Jesus. Every believer, though, needs daily cleansing from the struggle with sin as we are in that process of growing in Christ likeness. That's why we're told if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The person who is justified needs to be cleansed from the contaminating effects of sin and from the fact that it breaks us with fellowship with a father. We're not, um, it's not about the penalty of sin. That's already been paid for. But one of them was not clean. One of them was not saved. So when he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done for you? Jesus is showing the importance of humility and for the need for his followers to be willing always to take the role of a servant. This is what our master has done, and this is how we are to be with each other. We're to care for those who can't care for themselves. We're to help those who are suffering by doing whatever menial task might need to be done. We're never to try to have a place of honor. Rather, we're to take a lower place so somebody else might be honored. This is the example Jesus has left for us. No wonder we read in the book of 1 Peter by Peter. That God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And, you know, we all struggle with pride. And to think that God is opposed to us, the picture is he stiff arms us. We have enough trouble in life without God opposing us because of our foolish, arrogant pride. I mean, think about how many times you think you're better than, you're smarter than your husband, you know more than other people, You're wiser, you're more spiritual, your physical attributes are more pleasing, whatever. All of those thoughts of pride are wicked, such as the thinking of total contrast for those who are to be followers of Jesus and have a servanthood, humility mindset. Jesus then speaks of his betrayal. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and he testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And the disciples began looking at one another at a loss as to know which one he was speaking of. Jesus was concerned for his disciples. He was concerned that when this heinous deed was done by Judas, they wouldn't be destroyed and devastated by it. So he is telling them in advance what's going to happen. So when it happened, they would remember their omniscient Jesus had already told them what was happening. Jesus would still send his men out into the world as his representatives, despite the fact that there would be one who would lift up his heel against him. Jesus is really troubled here. He's in severe turmoil. And that's because he loved Judas. He loved him. And he knew the fate that awaited Judas in the darkest, most torturous place in hell Forever and ever. The rest of the disciples are simply in shock as they're looking around at each other, having no clue who in this room would be capable of doing such a thing. Judas was a very good actor. And certainly Jesus had treated Judas the same as all the disciples with great love and affection. He was never aloof from him. In the other gospel account, they kept saying Jesus to Jesus, Surely it's not I, surely it's not I. Peter then asks John, because he's reclining right next to Jesus, to find out who it is. It would appear that John was on the right side of Jesus and that Judas was on his left. Really, a place of honor. They usually reclined on their left side so that their right arm was free to be able to feed themselves. I tell you, if you were a lefty, this is a whole nother set of problems. <laughs> Laying the opposite way on the table, I don't even get that. You know, head to head, I don't know. Anyways, anyways therefore, each uh, would have his head close to the chest of the man that was on his left. So John leaned back and asked who it was, and Jesus simply dipped uh, the bread and gave it to Judas on his left. And apparently it was John who heard Jesus say, That is the one for whom I shall dip a morsel and give it to him. This was considered to be a kind deed, to honor somebody and give him the food. And Jesus seems to be making one final gesture towards Jesus in showing him kindness to the very end, the last moment. But Judas had a hard heart. After three years of seeing him, hearing him, being with him, he rejected this love. And this last gesture of love he spurned. After taking the morsel of bread, Satan entered into Judas Judas had made that final decision to reject Jesus. Satan entered into Judas, and uh, Jesus dismissed him. Whatever you do, do quickly. Jesus was about to institute the Lord's Supper, which is seen in another gospel account, and he is not going to have Judas or Satan here for these final major teaching, precious moments. Jesus had exposed Judas to John, And Judas knew he better act quickly because for this betrayal to actually come to pass. So he went straight to the Sanhedrin, told them of the best time and the best place to arrest Jesus. Because Judas knew where Jesus and his men always went, they would go to Gethsemane, which means Olive Press, where they had gone many, many times before. And it is night and there are no crowds. It's the perfect time to arrest Jesus in the cover of darkness. Judas demonstrates to us a life Wasted by lost privileges and opportunities. Day after day, he observed Jesus and interacted with him. He also shows us the supreme danger of loving money. What is stunning is the kindness of Jesus and the patience and mercy of Jesus right to the very end. When Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, Jesus addresses him in the gospel account of Matthew as friend. Judas had left them all at night and he went out out into the darkness that night and it was a darkness he would be in forever, not just physical, it's total spiritual darkness. In total contrast to Jesus, the light of the world. And the moment Judas left, the entire atmosphere in the room was cleared and Jesus began to teach his disciples, preparing them for the crucifixion and his ultimate return to heaven, that he would be leaving them. In verses 31 through 38, Jesus states that he will be glorified. He's referring to his death on the cross in just a matter of hours. It would appear to be a defeat from a human perspective, but with his death, he will purchase the salvation of countless souls. And the justice of God and his demand for sin being punished will be met. And think of it, ladies, the debt of decrees that every believer has have been canceled out and nailed to the cross. So Jesus goes on to say with terms of affection, little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. As Jesus is glorified, it would mean he is going to leave the physical presence of his disciples. Then Jesus speaks of the new commandment to love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Love is the key word as Christ is going to address his disciple in these next few chapters. Love is now going to take on a new meaning because of the death of Jesus and what he accomplishes at the cross. And when he leaves, the Holy Spirit will come and he will indwell his own and give them the power and the ability to love. Jesus then tells them that he was going and they'll not be able to follow him. And Peter speaks up and says, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? And Jesus answered, or, and, and then uh, Peter said, I will lay down my life for you. Jesus must have just shook his head. Truly, truly, will you lay down your life for me? I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Peter reminds us, all of us, of how deceitful our hearts really are. He believed he had the courage to die for Jesus. He really thought he did. He even boasted that even though all the rest of the guys might fall away and be, you know, have no courage, he will have courage. He'll die for Jesus. He'll go to prison. Peter had too much pride, and he also had too much confidence in himself. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in just a few hours' time, Peter will be sleeping instead of watching and praying. Thankfully, this will not be the end of the story of Peter. He'll be restored when we get to chapter 21 after all of this. And he will be filled with the Spirit. And we know he boldly proclaims the gospel in the book of Acts. And he will die for his Savior. He will have courage and boldness when the time does come. But at this point, he has no idea how spiritually weak he really is. Jesus lovingly warned him. And Jesus had prayed for him. Satan boasted that Peter was nothing. He was going to, you know, get rid of him like chaff. But Satan was wrong. The prayers of Jesus were answered and Peter would be recommissioned for service for his Lord and be a lot more sensitive and aware of human frailty as a result of his own sin. Suffering exposes the faulty thinking that we can be self-sufficient in any way. I can get up today. I can go out. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. Really. I'm reading a great book by Paul David Tripp on suffering, and he points out that suffering has the power to expose what you have been trusting all along. If you lose your hope when your physical body fails, maybe your hope wasn't really in your Savior after all. It was humbling to confess that what I thought was faith was actually self-reliance. He also points out that suffering is spiritual warfare. And this is something Peter was completely unaware of. He thought he was up for whatever challenge might come his way today. But he was wrong. And I don't think Peter's alone in this faulty thinking. The Lord takes each of us to that place to show it to us. I don't know what it takes in your life, but it's better to just get there before he takes you there (laughs) and recognize it. This Christmas season, let's remember why Jesus came, to die for sinners like you and like me. This is the greatest gift, to be forgiven of all your sins, to not have that burden, to not fear death, to have the gift of eternal life. That has been purchased by Jesus with his own blood. He must be our everything. The fact that you got up today and could be here and you're sitting here, that's a gift. Every breath he gives you to live, that's another moment, that's a gift. So let's not squander all of his gifts of love. Let's live a life that honors him and pleases him and is obedient with humility and serving each other. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth in your word. Lord, help us to gleam from your truth things that we need to change, things that we need to apply in our own hearts and lives, Lord. And I thank you for your kindness to us. I thank you for your mercy, and I pray as we eat together that you'll bless our time of fellowship, and I pray, Lord, for us as we go our separate ways and all the activities that are coming in the next few weeks and that we wouldn't get sidetracked, Lord, um, about the joy that we have, that you came to die so that we could live. I just praise you and pray that you will keep us safe and bring us back after the Christmas season, that we might study the most comforting words that you have for us in John 14. In your name, amen. All right. So at this time, that's...